take your Bible this morning, look over to 1 John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, uh, it would probably be fair to say uh, that we come to one of the greatest passages in all of the New Testament, in all of the New Testament, and that's the beauty, is it not, of expository preaching that we're not jumping around with the pastor's hobby horses, we sometimes say, are those common themes, um, which is good to do on a common theme. But as we look at it, we take the Word of God each week, and we come to sections of Scripture that are both thrilling and exciting, one here in 1 John chapter 3, but it also brings us to hard sections of Scripture, which we'll have to deal with when we get there. But let me read for you three one through three, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself as he is pure. Now, you remember the last week we said that he's writing here and helping us examine between what is true and what is false. And we're examining here in this text, beginning at 2.28 down at least through 3.10, what are the distinguishing marks of the children of God? What is it that makes one a child of God? What is it that allows one to be a child of the devil? And that's what he's at here and what he's after. In fact, you can see this. Look again at 2.28. He's writing to us, And now little children abide in him. Chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. Chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now. Chapter 3, verse 7, Little children, let no one deceive you. Verse 9, No one who is born of God makes a practice of sinning. Verse 10, By this is evident, who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. And so we're examining what are the distinguishing marks of a Christian uh, who's a child of God and one who's a child of the devil. In fact, you might ask the question, what are the distinguishing marks of the children of God? And how can we discern between the genuine and the make-believe? And so we begin last week by citing a couple of characteristics of the children of God. And we said that the first distinguishing mark in this passage is our pattern of abiding. Look at 2.28. Now, little children, it says, abide in Him. And we looked at that pattern of abiding and noted first the command to abide. It just means to remain. It means to stay. And so what John is saying is here is a distinguishing mark of the children of God, is His children abide in Him. His children remain in Him. They stay with Him. They're not part and then they go, like in chapter 2, verse 19. Then secondly, under 
that aspect of our pattern of abiding. We looked at the motivation for that command. Look at it again in 28. It says, so that when he appears, here's why we abide, that we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. And so the very one who we looked earlier in 1 John, who would be manifested in the flesh, will appear a second time in open glory. It obviously is a reference to the second coming of Christ. And here, as we link that scripture, those who abide in him have confidence when he comes. They have a courage about them, a fearlessness about them. In fact, the word you remember meant to speak freely. And here, one who abides in Christ is not shamed when he comes. They have confidence. And we noted there that the unbeliever who is unprepared at Christ's coming will mean judgment. And those who reject Christ ought to fear where their shame will become evident. And so here the first distinguishing mark of a believer was our pattern of abiding. But secondly, we noted there in verse 29, you are distinguishing yourself by your practice of righteousness. Look again at 29. If you know that he is righteous, be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. As God is righteous... His children, is the thought, is to be righteous in daily life. And so as God is righteous, his righteousness, if you will, is passed to his children. And you and I are to reflect the character of God. And so as he's righteous, we know, it says there, does John be sure that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Now, certainly we know that our efforts are imperfect, but we are in, this is the distinguishing mark, in the habit, is the thought, of practicing righteousness. And we noted there that that word is in the present tense, describing a habit of life, not a single action, okay? So here's what distinguishes the children of God from the children of the devil, The child of God is in the pattern of abiding in Christ. The child of God then is in the practice, if you will, of righteousness. And so here, again, it's not sinless perfection. It's the direction of our life. Now, it would be true that the practice of righteousness is the outward, visible sign that we are the children of God. The inward, if you will, working of the righteousness that comes out in our life describes this. Look at the last phrase, and this is where we pick it up. The one who practices righteousness in 229 has been born of him. And there we noted the doctrine of regeneration. And certainly this will be one of the themes of many themes that we'll tackle at men's equippers. That the reason that this is a distinguishing mark is the practice of righteousness is that it demonstrates outwardly the visible reality of the inward working of the Holy Spirit that caused you to be born of Him. To be born of Him is the new life and it was imparted to us at salvation. In other words, here is how we enter into the family of God. This is how we become a child of God. 
You have been born of him. So you see, in John's argument is this. You're abiding in him. You're here because you've been born of him. You're practicing righteousness. Why? Because that seed abides in you. And in your life, God the Father caused you to be born of him. And when you look at that little phrase in 229, has been born of him, God gets all the glory. In other words, he's the one who moved into your heart. It is a divine initiative that he took. In fact, you remember John 1, 12, but as many that received him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Remember that? Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of man, but of who? Of God. He caused you to be born again. And we left off with this statement last week. That righteousness here does not produce the new birth, but it is the visible evidence that one has been born of him. And so the righteousness is not the cause of the new birth, nor is it the condition of the new birth. Righteousness comes out because the believer has been born of him. So what are these distinguishing marks? Well, there's a pattern of abiding. Is that you? Is that your heart? Is that your love? Is that your passion? And then secondly, there's a practice of righteousness. In other words, you're not perfect. we're We're not sinless. We understand that from 1 John 1. But even when you do sin, you confess your sin. And you begin to want to look back in your life and see more of the Spirit of God now than you did before. And so these are the distinguishing marks. But I bring you now to the third one and the fourth distinguishing mark this morning. The third distinguishing mark of a child of God is our privileged position. Our privileged position. And this is thrilling. Look at the text again in 3.1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. Now, if you can just follow John's flow here, some of the commentators and the scholars have a difficult time tracking the text, making a distinction in the paragraphs. But I think you could see it right there. He gets to the end of verse 29, and he says, everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And it's almost as though, as as John thinks about being born again, the new life of Christ imparted, he begins to digress here. And oh, what a digression it is. Because John moves from the new birth to the magnanimous love of God by which you have become a child of God. In other words, here is how you became born of him. Now, now look at the text again. This is thrilling. I, we've got to go through this. It says there in 3.1, and I'm reading out of the ESV, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. In, in fact, it's, you see it there, what kind of love. In fact, the NASB translates that in the original language, see how great. ESV says, see what kind. But NASB says, see how great the love of the Father has bestowed on us. Now, as you glance down at your Bible that you're holding, do you see that first word there, see? 
And I, and I think in, in the, some translations, it, it, it actually says, behold. Did you guys ever sing that song growing up? Behold what manner of love. I shouldn't sing. My kids are going to kill me for that. Uh, I can see Tina laugh. There's a song, and sometimes the translation, rather than say see, says behold what manner of love. But what I want you to focus on, and it's not what I want you, that word see there in the language, and I don't mean to be so technical, it is, you say, what kind of part of speech is that? It's a command. Now, you might not read that and say, that's a command. Do this. But that's exactly what John the Apostle is saying. He's saying, see. And and he, and he puts it in a command. And he's calling for direct attention from you to the amazing wonder of God's love given to his children. In other words, for John, we need to meditate on this love and let its truth sink deep into our hearts. And so as we walk into the exposition, John says, see, and, and he gives you a command. Now look again at the text there in one. He said, see what kind of love. Or the thought would be, how great is the love. And again, John's saying, look, see. The, the idea is behold In other words, for John the Apostle, as he's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, and he gets to the phrase, born of him, he digresses a little bit and just says, this is incredible. John was overwhelmed by God's love, okay? In fact, there's some writing in the original language there on see what kind, that the idea of what kind is this. Where did this come from, is the thought. In fact, it's used in some writings to say, from what country did that come from? In fact, Stott, in his commentary, when he says what kind, he says this. It describes, he said, the Father's love is so unearthly, so foreign. And John wonders, Stott said, what country it may have come from. And so here, as we walk into this text, under this privileged position, he says, what kind of love is this? And it describes how great his love is. In fact, that little phrase there, and I don't have time. You know, it's always hard for a preacher. Because I I don't know if I've told you, I probably cut out way over 50% what I get down. Because we'd be here till one, and that's not good, right? Um, So, but, but that little phrase, what kind is used in the New Testament six times. And every time it's used, it's like wonder. Just astonishment. Remember when Jesus came walking on the water and he calmed, not walking, but the waves were filling into the boat and then they, teacher, don't you care we're perishing? And remember he just got up and said, hush, that's what he said. Be still. And it went from a raging sea to just, I think those guys were just dripping with water. The wind died down and the water just became just glass like you could wakeboard on it, I'm guessing. And it was just, it was just so calm. And when they looked around, the, the, the disciples said, who is what? This. And that's the same phrase there. In other words, for John here in this context, what is this? What kind of love is this? And in that other equation, who is this that even the wind and the sea 
obey Him is the thought. In other words, wonder, astonishment, incomprehensible love. One scholar described it as the glorious, measureless love. In other words, it's beyond comprehension. Another scholar writing said, John perhaps tried to call it super, colossal, stupendous, magnificent, or unbelievable, but he eventually gave up, okay? In other words, he walks into the text and he says, what kind of love is this? God's love is so amazing, beloved, that we cannot comprehend the fullness of it. It is so wonderful. But here, John says to you this morning, for us at Grace Church of the Valley, you are exhorted to dwell on it and to love it. And that's why I wanted to put communion at the end so that even as we partake of the elements, it's in response. You say, well, tell me more about this love here biblically because he says, what kind of love? Let me just click off a few things here to you. First, this love is of divine nature. This love is of divine nature. In other words, this love that's going to be described originates with the Father. And the the nature of this love is that it always seeks the good of those being loved. I think you're well aware of it. This is the agape love that the Bible talks about. For God so loved the world. Agape, the world, if you will. This is the love that seeks if you will, seeks us out, that sacrifices its its own need for the blessing and the well-being of another, even if that person is utterly unloving. And this is the nature of divine love. Scriptures tell us that it is eternal love. In fact, it says of you in Jeremiah 31 that he has loved you with an everlasting love. That's the nature of it. We know in Deuteronomy chapter 7 that this love is unconditional in nature. In other words, he just showered it down upon you. We know that this love is incomprehensible according to Ephesians chapter 3, if you will. And so here is this blessing of God's love. It sacrifices for the need of another. Certainly you remember John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this then someone should lay down his, what? Life for his friends. That's the nature of this divine love. I'm thinking of Paul in Ephesians when he said, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us, what? Alive together with Christ by grace, you have been what? Saved. So here's the nature of this love. Secondly, let me just note not only the divine nature of this love, but this love, secondly, is a gift of God. In fact, look at the text there. It's a gift of God. You see that. See what kind of love it says this. The Father has given to us. One translation says that this love is lavished upon us. And the focus again of this phrase is that God's love is his divine initiative to you, if you will. And John finds it astonishing and so do I, right? If you look at that phrase there again in 3.1, the Father has given to, it says there, us... In other words, he, 
God's love takes sinners and causes them to be born again and then brings you into the family of God. Now, I ask you this morning, were you, as a human being, worthy of that love? And the answer, of course, would be what? No, right? I mean, we understand from Romans 5.8 that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet, what? Sinners, Christ, what? He died for us. While you were a sinner, while I was a sinner, Christ died for us. In fact, Romans 5.10 goes on to say that we were enemies of who? God. We were at war with God. We were, according to Paul in Ephesians 2.1, dead in our trespasses and what? Sins. I mean, some people picture, I was talking with one of our men this week at lunch, and we said some people picture salvation as though God is in the boat and we're in the water, okay? And he comes along and he throws us a what? A life preserver. And we grab it and we come to Christ. But, but it kind of puts the focus on us grabbing it. The truth of the scripture is, is that we are already buried in the deepest part of the ocean, right? We are not flailing in life. The picture that the scripture gives is that we're already buried, if you will, into the depth of the sea in our own sin, and you have no life in you. None. On the EKG, it's flatlined. You're dead, spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins. So it's not as though he comes along and he sees us in our sin and he throws us the life preserver. No, listen. If you're in Christ this morning, he pulled you up. He breathed life into you. He caused you to be born of him. See how great, John says, is the love of this father. You know, I just used to think like when I was young that and I might have shared this one time maybe with the young people, I used to just feel guilty all the time, okay? That's probably when I was 13 or 14. Like if, if I just was walking around, I just always felt guilty. I'm just like, man, I'm guilty. But I, I don't love God. I mean, I kind of like him. I go to church. I'm listening to this guy named MacArthur. He is kind of convicting. But I really don't kind of love him, and I really don't want anybody to tell me what to do. And so I kind of got enough truth, but then I got my own lifestyle, and I'm just... I'm feeling guilty and I felt like the Lord always had me in his scope. Like he had me in his sights, okay? And you know, sometimes they used to say the hound of heaven is after you and you can run, but he can run faster. And so I always thought of myself being caught, if you will, in the scope and I was in the bullseye of the scope and so I felt guilty, but I realized that's an incomplete view of theology, I'm not in his scope running from him. I'm already, what? Dead. I mean, it's like dove season. Did that happen yesterday? I mean, the trigger wasn't like he's got me scoped, okay? No, 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 no. Biblical theology would say you're dead in your trespasses and sins. The trigger had been pulled. The bullet had pierced me, and I was, what? Dead. That's the thought, There's no life in you. There's nothing on the EKG. You don't get like a little bump of spirit. It's 
okay? You're, you're gone is the thought. The, the writers of Scripture said that you were without hope, that you were alienated from God, that you were a sinner unable to respond to God, and God Almighty initiates motivated by His love to give mercy to you as an expression of His grace. That's the Scripture. I mean, think about it. What a, what a wonder that the Creator of the universe, the Sustainer of the universe, the Sustainer of all life, the One worshipped by angels, and the One who's in, who's, whose angels are in His presence, they cry, Holy, Holy, Holy is also a God of love. So here it is. This is love. It's divine in nature, one. Secondly, it is a gift of God. He has given it to us. And thirdly, this love places you in a divine household. Look at it again. It says, see what kind of love the, there it is, the Father has given to us. And the emphasis there is on the father, highlighting the family relationship that placed you into his family. He is our heavenly father. And because he's our father and we're in his household, look at the text again in 3.1. It says the father has given to us that we, that's you if you're in Christ, should be called the what? The children of God. Listen, when we were born of Him, we were made His children by choice. In other words, God has acted to make that possible. And I just want you to think about this for a moment because of that command that He gave us there in the opening word. Think about it. Is this not the greatest honor that could ever be given to someone. I mean, you this morning, if you're in Christ, you are called a child of God. You know God as your heavenly Father. In fact, when Jesus taught us to pray, He said, pray in this way, our Father who art where? In heaven. He brings us into His very own family. He causes you to be born again. He lavishes his love upon you. And then he brings you into the ultimate royal family. Is that the coolest thing there is? I mean, how many of you years, it was a few years ago when Kate and William got married. Was that like a big deal? That was like, did I say their names right? I don't know what his real name is. But when they got married, that was the biggest thing going. I mean, I'm sure, how, let's see by a show of hands, how many of you were up at night watching? No, you don't have to show me. Don't do that. Um, um, but remember, that was a big deal, right? I mean, because, because she married into the, into the royal family, and people got up in the middle of the night to watch that. In fact, if you begin to look back at the statistics of that, and it's not just a past event, Almost every single week you go into the grocery store, there they are, what? In one way or another, on the cover of one of those uh, 
stupid magazines. You know what I mean? They're there, okay? I don't know another way to call it. They're there. Kate and William. He touched her brow. Oh, you know, it's just, I mean, every, every time you see something on one of these magazines, there they are. In fact, maybe some people of the 1,900 people were able to be there in London at the Westminster Abbey and witness that in person. And if you weren't fortunate enough to be one of the 1900 as she makes her way down, you know, they get all this stuff going, right? Then maybe you were part of the one million who were part of the procession kind of coming into Westminster Abbey. They said that there were a million people, if you will, on the streets of London watching this wedding take place where she would become part of the royal family. And then maybe you just weren't there. Maybe you weren't there in London. Maybe you were one of the two billion people who were said to watch this royal event around the globe. I mean, we think that there's around... 7 billion people, you're talking about one-third of the people in the world were watching this event. But listen, that's nothing. You're here this morning. You have been given the greatest privilege ever, 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 ever. You, You are a child of God. You know God as your heavenly Father. God Almighty has loved you with an everlasting love. He's loved you with an unconditional love. He's loved you with a love that even goes beyond comprehension, which is why Paul tells us to pray in Ephesians that we'd know something of the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of, breadth of the love of God, which surpasses what? Understanding. I mean, this is incredible. You don't need to be part of the earthly royal family. You are part of the heavenly family. So this is what John's doing. He says, listen, you're a child of God. You say, how don't you know, Scott? Listen, you have been in a practice of abiding, not perfectly, but you're following the Lord. You have a pattern of righteousness that marks your life because you've been born of him. And now thirdly, you've been given this incredible privilege to be part of the family of God. In fact, Paul put it this way in Romans eight seventeen: If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. Incredible. John 1, 12, John the apostle said that all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become one children of God. That's you. Listen, you ought to walk around that way, you know? Not in a boastful way, but you ought to walk around and think, I'm a child of the King. And, and as you realize God Almighty loved you, He can never let go of you, right? If God Almighty had you in mind with an everlasting love, do you think anybody can snatch you out of His hand? And what He's trying to do here is affirm you, assure you, these things I write to you that you may know you have eternal life. And here's how you know you've experienced the love of God. In fact, I think one of the best phrases in the whole text is next. And I don't know why I like this so much. Look at it. It says in 3.1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And I love this. You can underline it. It says, it's simple but profound. And so we are. Isn't that cool? In other words, listen, this is not just a future reality. Right now, as we're here at worship on this day, on September 2nd, 
We are his children. You have been adopted into his family. You have all the rights and the privileges of a child because God is our father. And so we are. And because we're God's children, look at the next phrase. Doesn't this make sense? It says there, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not, what? Know him. In other words, we are unknown to the world because we have a different father. People who are bound by their sin are children of the devil. People who are abiding in Christ, who've been born in him, have God as their father. And the reason why the world doesn't know you, okay, that's what John's saying, is that it did not know him. I mean, think about it. It's actually ludicrous, okay? You go into the store, there's Kate and William, the latest style. She wore a blue dress at this particular part. I mean, it just, it kind of, after a while it becomes, look at all these tabloids that go out with the royal family when the truest position is you have the most privileged position in all the earth being a child of God. But listen, the world does not know us because it did not know him. We are unknown to the world and the world does not recognize us Because it did not recognize, what? Him. As his glory, at his first coming, was veiled in the flesh, so too, Paul says in Colossians, our life is hidden in, what? Christ. Hidden with Christ in God. In fact, you don't have to turn there. Do you remember the statements? You probably know them by heart. That he was in the world, and I'm thinking of John 1.10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, Yet the world did not, what? Know him. He came into his own, and his own did not, what? Receive. I mean, how could the Jewish people miss him? He made the world. He spoke it into existence, and yet the world did not know him. He came into his own, and his own did not receive him. And Jesus said this in John 15, 18, If the world hates you, know that it is hated, what? Me, before it hated you. In fact, Jesus went on to say, excuse me, John did. And in John 16, 2, he said, the hour is coming. Then whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God. And they will do this because they have not known the Father nor me. And so listen, to be part of God's family is to be treated as the world treated him. You say, well, Scott, what does this have to do with the context? This. But even to be treated in this manner is a sure sign of assurance to you that their hatred is proof that you belong to God. In other words, I think John's just saying, don't be surprised. Say, my mom, she doesn't understand. Really? They didn't understand Christ. Well, well, they understand you. He said, Pastor, my daddy just doesn't get it. Well, listen, if they didn't understand Christ, why are they going to get you? You say, but Pastor, my grandparents grew up in this kind of religion. And they just, listen, don't expect them to understand. If they didn't understand Jesus, they're not going to understand you. Listen, if they didn't understand that he came from the Father, then how are they going to understand you're a child of God, is the thought. But look again what what John says. Look back at the text. He says, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. And now this in 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children. 
It says now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. I love that little phrase, beloved. The love of the father for his children. He said, we are God's children now. Isn't that good? The world might not understand you, but this is your spiritual identity right now. Listen, you're not waiting to become a child of God. Right now, this morning, you are, if you're in Christ, a child of God. So look at it again in 3.2. He says there, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet, what? Appeared. And, and you say, what's he getting at? Well, what, he says, while rejoicing in the present spiritual identity, we also look forward to the future. And here what John is saying is that the full extent of what we shall be, future tense, has not yet been, what? Revealed is the thought. We still sin. We still stumble. I do. We still are tempted to sin. We have not yet, what? Arrived. And so look at it again. I want you to be able to read your Bible as we walk through this. Beloved, we're God's children now, but what we will be has not yet, what? Appeared. Listen, when I get a a picture of my dad, who's been in the hospital for close to three months now, and I see that he's got his leg cut off, He's on dialysis, he's on Coumadin, and now he's, he's just sick, I just, and he's a believer. I, I get it, it, what that means. It has not yet appeared what we shall be. It's, in other words, that's not the status of a true child of God, and the reason is we're not there yet, right? That's what John is saying. It says there, what we will be has not yet appeared. We haven't arrived in glory yet. Reminds me of the little boy. You ever hear this story? In Sunday school class, this little boy was poking and hitting other kids. You know how sometimes kids can do that. You know, they're just poking. And the teacher was talking in this Sunday school class about God as the creator when he asked this little boy who was poking and moving. And he said, who made you? And the little boy replied, God did. And the Sunday school teacher said, well, he didn't do a very good job. To which the boy replied, that's because he ain't finished yet, you know? <laughs> there it is. He ain't finished with us yet, right? And, and, and he's not finished with us, right? And this isn't all there is, right? I'm thinking of Paul in Corinthians in 2.9 where he says, it is written that what no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. In fact, I don't know why, other than maybe I trust it was the Spirit of God. As I woke up this morning, my wife had her little Apple phone, and she said, read this scripture. And I'm reading the passage in Corinthians, where is it, 12, when Paul got caught up into the third heaven. And he got caught up into the third heaven and he speaks there as it in the third person. And he says, I know a man, right? He goes, whether in the body or out of the body, who saw such glorious things that he could not write about them. Listen, it has not yet appeared as what we shall be. And when Paul got caught up into that third heaven, he saw things so wonderful, he could not even communicate about them. So it's not yet appeared as what we shall be, Look at the text again. It says there, but we know, this is what we do know, that when he appears, 
we shall be like him because we shall see him as he what is. Listen, when Jesus returns in open glory, we will be, text says, like him. Like him. In other words, when you see him, you're going to be like him. What does that mean? Well, just a comment here. You know that we're not, enough said, but equal to Christ. You know that we're not little gods. Christ will always be distinct from us. So what does it mean when we see him, we will be like him? That phrase captures the the thought that we will be similar, if you will, in holiness and in resurrection body. In other words, when we see him, we're not going to be, he's always God, the second person of the Trinity, but we're going to be like him in holiness and in resurrection body. Do you remember in Romans 8, 29, where it says there that the focal point of our salvation is those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become what? Conformed to the what? The image of his son. Listen, beloved, this isn't the end of it, right? He predestined you to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's future glory. Present glory is this in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed, he said, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Right now we're under that process. He's not finished with us yet. We're still growing. We're becoming more like Christ. But one day at the ultimate part of our salvation, there's justification There's sanctification and there is what? Glorification. And in that day, we will be like him. And so Paul put it this way in Philippians that our citizenship is in heaven. From now we await a savior, he said, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says in 321, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. In other words, whatever that phrase is, we will be like him, is that at that moment when our Savior comes at the second coming, he will transform our lowly body and it will be like his glorious body. What This phrase captures this idea that we will share his immortality. Here's the teaching of Scripture that the entire person, body and soul, will be completely made flawless. And you will be given a body that is imperishable, that is powerful, the scriptures say, that is spiritual. And we will be like Christ in his resurrected body. And we know that Jesus in his resurrected body walked through walls and he ate bread. But let me show you about this this idea. Look over at 1 Corinthians just for a moment. Here's hope. Here's hope. 1 Corinthians, you remember that great passage on the resurrection? Many of you have lost a loved one, maybe recently. You've lost one you've loved, whatever it might be. And you saw them at the end of their life, which is not true of what's going to happen, right? It's not yet appeared as what we shall be. Look at this in 1 Corinthians 15, 42. Here he's talking about the resurrection, 15, 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable but what is raised is what? Imperishable. In other words, we'll be like him. You will get a glorified body. Your body will never decay. 
your body one day will be absolutely incorruptible. So I'm thinking my dad won't be there any longer with just a limb. He won't have to be hooked up to a dialysis machine. Your child that you lost will be there with a perfected body that is raised imperishable. Look at the next verse in 43 where he says of our earthly body, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It says it is sown in weakness and it is raised in what? Power. You will not only have an incorruptible body, you will have a glorified body. In fact, look at verse 44. It says, it is sown in a natural body. That's us. It is raised, interesting, a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And the thought is, is that our bodies right now are governed, if you will, by the flesh and not totally by the spirit. But in that day, it will be raised a spiritual body and our bodies will be, if you will, governed by the spirit and not the flesh it will never know sin again. Incredible. Now look back at 1 John. Pick up his argument now. He's saying, listen, we will be like him, okay? You say, how will this happen? How will this happen? Look at the text in 3.2. We will be like him because we will see him as he, what? Is. That's the future reality. And so we live in hope of that day. Paul said in Corinthians for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. When he said, now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have fully been known. So beloved, our unrestrained, unhindered sight of Jesus Christ and all his glory and all his moral excellence and all his perfection will be so stunning. It will be so real. It will be so breathtaking. It will be so irresistible that we will become like him and all the fog and our vision will be burned away at the noonday brightness of his glory and all the desires of this life will appear as gravel in comparison to his diamond-studded brilliance. And so the image of God, though marred by sin, will be utterly transformed into glory. So how do you know if you're a child of God? By our pattern of abiding, by our practice of righteousness, and by our privileged position. Listen, Let me take you just as we prepare for communion. Look over at 1 John 4, 9. It says this. In this, and as I bring together the love of God in Christ, in this is the love of God. It says this, that the love of God was made manifest, 4, 9, among us. Here's how. That God, think about this, sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Wow. Listen, you know that one in John three sixteen, Maybe in a different translation here, where God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son 
that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. Listen, just in a moment as we take the bread and the cup, you've got God. Think of the scripture, John 3, 16. God, who's the greatest love, so loved the greatest degree that he gave, he so loved the world, which is the greatest number, that he gave the greatest act, his only begotten son, the greatest gift, that whosoever the greatest invitation believeth the greatest simplicity in him, the greatest person should not perish the greatest deliverance, but the greatest comparison or difference have the greatest certainty, everlasting life, the greatest possession. Listen, you're a child of God. You rejoice in your practice of abiding, your pattern of righteousness, and your privileged position.